0: A patent allows an individual or a company to lay creative claim to an invention. A patent can provide protection from having its idea being used without giving credit to its creators. Of course, the downside is that patents can be filed and then not turned into products, inhibiting innovation. Patents can also be used offensively in a practice known as patent trolling. Large companies like IBM and Google have so many patents that they have trouble keeping track of them all. And if your company has many different hardware and software products, how can you be sure that your patent collection protects you from a patent troll? Are you sure that you have patent coverage over all of those products? Nicole Shanahan is the CEO of Clear Access IP, which is a product that indexes patents, looks for vulnerabilities in a corporation's patent strategy, and finds opportunities in a patent collection for further value. The large text corpus of a patent collection is the perfect place to apply machine learning. We discussed the nature of patents, the intersection between law and software, and the product development process of Clear Access IP. Nicole Shanahan is the CEO of Clear Access IP. Nicole, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here with you.
0: Today we're going to talk about some different areas of patents and patent management and how that relates to software as well as the engineering behind the software that you're building at Clear Access IP. And I want to start by talking about just the different players who would be concerned about patents in the software space. So I want to talk about individuals and corporations and the lawyers who might be involved under different circumstances in software patents or as well as the patent industry as a whole. Let's just start with an individual. So when an individual files a patent, whether they're a part of a company or not, what are they getting? What are they trying to get from a patent?
1: Fundamentally, they're trying to get a temporary monopoly to make build own rights to in a commercial setting the ability to implement that invention and in the software context it's a bit fuzzy because sometimes it's hard to understand exactly how a software method is used and so there's some that are more obvious software patents those are usually visual so the click to, or the the swipe to unlock technology in cell phones that is is a portfolio of patents and if you look at where the smartphone wars that that's a large area of litigation between the largest handset manufacturers if you look at that space just alone you see several individuals who have actually patented um, and own patents and if you look at the full scale ownership there's quite a few, diverse players there, ranging from individuals to corporations, startups, and third-party patent holders, also known as patent trolls.
0: Hmm. Let's take the swipe to unlock example. You said there's a bunch of different patents involved. Can you maybe give me a explanation for how the different participants in that patent would get their remuneration for that patent or how the the origination of when somebody implements the swipe to unlock feature and you know all these different people who have a have skin in the game when it comes to the swipe to unlock feature when they have the skin in the game patent wise how are they finding out that they have skin in the game or how are they laying their claim to how much ownership they should have over that sort of patent?
1: that is a wonderful question and that's really the question of our age and it's one of the reasons why i created clear access ip it is incredibly hard to navigate the patent thickets that exist today a patent thicket is defined as an environment in which multiple parties own different pieces to a product for example You know, we have Apple, Samsung, Google as top players, and those are the ones that have the money and the finances to really build up quite robust portfolios. Not only build them, but just understand the nature of them, understand their competitive landscape. They, They hire out numerous vendors, law firms, search firms to help them conduct these landscape analyses of just similarities between their portfolios and existing portfolios that don't belong to them. And as they go through that, they identify risk effectively. So this is exposure infringement risk. But that's a very difficult way to create, if you want to look at it from a macroeconomic standpoint, a functioning innovation environment. Mm. And so when you look at kind of the future of innovation, we're going to have very complex robotics. If you think the cell phone was complex, you know, think again, things are going to get significantly more complex and the thickets, the IP thickets are going to be significantly more difficult and expensive to navigate. Does this mean that smaller players are going to effectively be out out competed just from the get go because they don't have the finances to conduct these sophisticated landscape analysis? If nothing happens, if nothing changes to the industry, yes, we're going to have a very, very difficult environment for for small companies to grow in. And that just doesn't seem fair, given our patent system was created in 1790 to really stimulate innovation in the useful arts. Our patent system has really struggled to keep pace, honestly, since the bicycle was invented in 1920. And before that, the first patent thicket was in 1850 over the sewing machine. So. So, you know, where we are right now is, I really believe, is an inflection point for Mm -hmm. patents. And it really stems from a lot of the difficulty between software and hardware, of of understanding how all the pieces fit together correctly.
0: Well, let's confront the question of whether it is even uh, appropriate to care about patents, because I think there's a contingent of software engineers, at least, maybe free information hacker type people in in the more abstract sense who will just say, you know, if you care about patents, if you're even thinking about patents, that means that you're anti-creativity, you're you are part of the man. What are your thoughts on that position? I mean, is, can you be a creative inventor type of person and just kind of ignore the patent system altogether?
1: Again, another great question. It's kind of a personal decision. And I have clients that really do put faith in the patent system, but that usually doesn't happen until they raise a series A, because until then, they're just trying to survive as a company. It's interesting because the correlation between healthy finances, and aggressive patent strategy go hand-in-hand. If a party is bootstrapping, I oftentimes see them take that former stance of, oh, the patent system is silly, I want no part of it, you know, software patents shouldn't be allowed anyways. But the minute they have something to protect and has real commercial and, and revenue upside, I see them changing their tone a bit. And so it it's it's kind of goes back to that old saying that our, I think our parents used to say that you don't become a Republican until you start making your own money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there, it, there's a bit of similarity here is you don't become a believer in the patent system until you really have something to lose. So The way I I tend to look at it is slightly somewhere in the middle. I think that the patent system is a very important system for attribution, and attribution is one of the largest stimulators of creativity. If you just had rampant theft (laughs) and and a zero attribution, a full community system, a full open source system that really lacked any transparency into who created what, people would likely be far less excited to you know invest in the hardest to make breakthroughs.
0: Do you really think that's true because I think there's a lot of inventors throughout history where they're not motivated by the money or the notoriety. They're really motivated by the discovery and they don't actually, you know, care so much about the upside, the the financial upside or the notoriety upside. They're really more just curious about things, but I don't know. I guess I guess you you know you can build design a patent system that that would incentivize the people who are financially driven who do want their ideas protected, and the people who are motivated by something other than notoriety and money. Meh, those people you know they're they're basically protected regardless. All they have to do is like think up the idea, and you know if they get infringed upon, they don't care. Regardless, it doesn't really matter what the patent system is as long as it doesn't somehow prevent their inventive activities.
1: Yeah, and and again, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. What is the motive behind our innovators? And it's really is diverse. We have a system, a government system that is really a one size fits all system. But the reality is, is that we have a very fluid inventions system in the world today. And how do we create a patent system that, that really can be fluid and remain fluid such that, you know, someone might create something and open source it one day, but the next day they may wish to patent its counterpart. Or in another scenario, can we allow someone that owns a patent to then open source it for a period or open source it to a nonprofit group? this is known as pledging your patent. And pledges really have have only taken shape over the last decade. And if you look at some of the pledges in effect today, Tesla, for example, pledged several of their battery-related patents to stimulate innovation. However, the likelihood that Tesla can get away with pledging all of its patents is, is you know, I'm very skeptical of that in the long term because inevitably there, there could be some kind of malicious actors that go after Tesla, in which case enforcing their patents would be necessary. So I, I think that we we are a very sophisticated people, and, and we're capable of really reordering the patent system mm. to to fit the nature and the diversity of our innovators.
0: Mm. So large companies, you sometimes see, you know, there's like, Insiders that try to report on what's Apple doing next or what is Google doing next. And the insiders are always talking about the patents that Google filed recently or Apple filed recently, like, oh, here's a patent that allows toddlers to talk to robots or something. It's just like, wow, okay, weird. This is, you know, I don't, I don't, I can't fathom what product implementation this (laughs) is going to lead to. Can you help me understand the internal process of a large company and when a large company processes patents when they file patents how they manage their patents and how it like where where does it take place in the product development cycle
1: uh, that's a wonderful question because it there are similarities across all large corporations but there's definitely some unique characteristics so generally speaking we have a Under the American Events Act that was implemented in 2012, a system that requires companies to be the first to file. This is a change from the pre-2012 Act and in that we used to be a first to invent system, which just meant you could invent if you had proof that you invented, you had proof that it was in use, you have proof that it was somewhat known, then that would serve as prior art and 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 you, you would be able to have protection if you had filed from that a first to invent date. Today, we are in a first to file regime, which is on par with effectively the rest of the world. And under first to file, you really have to expedite the filing and the recordation of that invention. So large corporations such as Google, Microsoft, IBM, Amazon, they have a very vigorous process of collecting information from their product teams, from their engineers. Um, they get them in the format of invention disclosures. So an invention disclosure oftentimes is a few pages that describes kind of the background of the invention, details of you know what makes this invention unique, why it's unique, and then a listing of the core steps of that invention. Invention, that that invention disclosure then usually goes through a review process with either the in-house IP counsel or sometimes a head of R&D will review it. And uh, the decision will be made whether or not to invest in the filing fees. Generally speaking, they start with provisional filings, which give you about 10 months to really get your act together and understand fully how this invention is going to be packaged in a full patent filing. Mm -hmm. And provisionals are are very, very cheap to file. So when I meet startups or small companies, I'm like, it's a $130 filing fee. Uh, government filing fee. You can usually get away with, you know, five or six pages of of a written description and one or two drawings. And then it gives you about 12 months to figure out if is is this an invention that you're really interested in investing in.
0: Okay, so I guess let's get to what Clear Access IP does because this is basically the challenge of, well, at least from the perspective, of, so we've talked about some some different roles, like the, you're an ev- individual inventor, you, a patent system means X to you, you're a giant company, the patent system means Y to you. In any case, if you are a person who is inventing stuff, there's a likelihood that you will engage with the patent system in different ways. So, Patent management is something that becomes relevant and explain what Clear Access IP does.
1: Sure. So we're the first integrated platform that does the collection. So the invention disclosures, which I, I spoke about earlier. So we have an invention disclosure repository, and that is a touch point for, you know, the first seed of an idea. And then we have all of the filler pieces in between. So we have a platform that keeps track of the provisional filing that then notifies you of the deadline to file the non-provisional. We have a computational logic AI. It's a, it's a clerical AI that then compiles and collects and stores and dockets. Docket is a legal term for calendaring, calendars deadlines, and that saves a ton of money and time just on administrative costs and then finally it's it's now integrated with a ip deal room that provides that flexibility. I said, it'd be great if we had a patent system that could provide something to everyone, you know, irregardless of what their motivation is. And so IP Dealroom has an incredible amount of flexibility to package your portfolio into either, you know, a strategic portfolio, which you will use to protect yourself, but you would never enforce against anybody else. You can pledge, that's the open sourcing, the patent. You can license it with or cross-license it with a with a partner um, or even a competitor, and within IP Deal Room we put in an, a machine learning analyst. So it's a it's a, it's a piece of AI software that reads the patent portfolio and draws insights into the landscape. Hmm. You know, earlier I said. It's very expensive for parties to do this today, such that only really the top 1% of companies have the budget to do that that level of analysis. So we're trying to even the playing field a bit and bring down the costs of that landscape work so that small and mid-sized companies now have access.
0: Mm. Now, in order to do those kinds of things where you're, for example, pledging a patent do you need to integrate with some sort of government database that has a, a index of pledged patents?
1: That that has been such a hot topic. There is no comprehensive registry hmm. of pledged patents. There was one attempt at University of Washington, I believe. Or no, I'm sorry. It was as George Contreras, he's a professor of law, and he attempted to build a database of all pledges in the United States. And he did it just as his, as, his as, as a private ambition, but there's no government centralized registry of these things. So keeping track of them is something that ClearX's IP aims to do. Enabling parties to pledge their patents is something IP Dealroom is set up for. But in terms of a government registry, there actually is none today.
0: In real estate, I know there's this thing called multiple listing service. I don't remember exactly how it works, but I think it's basically at one point, you know, some large forward thinking corporation decided, let's just build a big database of the real estate listings across the United States and nobody else was doing it. So they just built up this huge business because if you are a real estate agent or you're a broker you have to use MLS and then today you see these newer companies like Redfin that are encroaching on the MLS business and I think they're building their own databases of stuff. It sounds like there's not even an MLS of of patents. Is is that an accurate analogy or do you know do you have any historical context for the MLS business?
1: I, I do have contacts for the MLS business. Um, I, I bought my first house last year. Mm. Uh, <laughs> was, it, was that an but,
0: accurate description of it?
1: Yeah. So, so. It, it is a formalized repository, so it's a standardized format for representing a real estate opportunity, a real estate sale usually. Sometimes you can find rent listings I think on MLS. So that's a great analogy to what we're missing in the patent business. There is no central repository that explains what the patent holder is doing with their patents. You can pretty much, you know, look at real estate and say, oh, that that individual doesn't want to sell. <laughs> or there'll be a signpost out that then that, that indicates, okay, this this homeowner does want to sell. Mm-hmm. We don't have anything like that in the patent space. (laughs) Um, So when you do these landscape analyses, you get a list of relevant patents and patent holders Mm. that relate to your line of business. However, you have no idea whether or not they're planning to litigate or they're aggressive or they need the licensing revenues from their IP. There's no way to really shop for IAP today. Part of the difficulty is it's it's cultural. There's a lack of trust between parties such that even contacting a potential buyer can come off as highly antagonistic. And that's because there's been, you know, quite a bit of patent trolling going on over the last decade. That being said, it it would be great if we could have a central repository where all parties communicate with each other in kind of standard terms. And one of the goals of of Clarex's IP when I started it four years ago was was to really help patent holders tell their story, you know, through a standardized method of communicating.
0: And that sounds great. It makes me wonder what the state of the art is outside of clear access like if you know because when i submit a patent presumably some government agent sees that patent and goes okay great i'm gonna find out the ways to cross-reference that with the patents of the past but if there's no good way of like doing that search then you know what's to prevent duplication of patents and crossovers and errors in in the in the patent filing process? I mean, if there's no centralized database, how are they even doing that?
1: So there is a database of the published patent itself. That is actually available actually via a congressional mandate in the United States that our patents, as as they are published and, and they're records, the prosecution history, so the history by which you communicate back and forth with the United States Patent Office um, and argue for the novelty. Of, of your invention. That process is all public. The patent itself is also public. What isn't known and what creates this layer of mystery and this layer of risk is nobody really understands or has the capacity to read all of the patents and, and derive an accurate view. And that's where a lot of the skepticism of the patent system comes into play. So, you know, there's a lot of overlap between one person's patent and another. Examiners, USPTO examiners, are just people. And for them to be able to read hundreds of thousands of patents in a space and derive a very accurate view of whether or not a new patent truly is novel is, is not possible today. So they say a lot of this stuff is more of an art than a science and that kind of leads us to this very precarious area where on one hand we're juggling really what is you know black letter law and on the other hand human error an <laughs> enormous amount of human error and that human error is just due to capacity we you know you really need a very sophisticated i think computer computing capacity to properly implement the black letter law that we have for patents today
0: now the human error are you talking about human error at the even entering the data in their patent like in the government's patent system are you talking about human error when patent you know potential patent comes across a person in the government's desk and they're trying to figure out if this is a new patent or if this is old hat but what is the human error that you're referring to
1: really the the latter it's it's when it, when a new application comes across the desk of an examiner at the USPTO that examiner is responsible for applying the statutory code to that patent. And that individual has to do a very thorough reading of that patent. The USPTO has its own search capabilities that returns potentially invalidating patents but that whole process of arguing for you know what are very narrow claims in some instances then that back and forth from the patent attorney that says actually no you know this this sentence means this it doesn't actually mean what that other patent says Mm -hmm. and so definitionally we're creating very complex definitions and very nuanced and sometimes it It's, you know, if you think about the potential for misinterpretation just in regular everyday communications and and now compound that by the complexity of our technology.
0: (laughs) I want to understand more what Clear Access IP does. If I'm a giant corporation like Intel or Google, one of these companies that has a giant suite of patents, how am I using the software that you're developing
1: sure so you could use our software in a number of ways in a full so we do partial and then we do full implementations because The industry is very much in flux today, which means that that some of the larger corporations, they're, they're such large moving animals that it's hard for them to really change rapidly. So we do oftentimes partial implementations for corporations where we go in and we say, okay, you need help with just data management. We have an automated clerk that can take all of your data and quickly organize it without a single stroke of the key on the keyboard. Other corporations will use us for corporate development research. So in in that case, they'll be using the machine learning analyst and IP deal room to either review an outside party's IP or review their internal IP and get a sense of what, what they're missing. So any holes that might exist in their portfolio, our system is very good at identifying. And we like to identify these things not in terms of risk, because I really hate that word. I really hate that we have an innovation I'm sorry,
0: system. I, 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 sorry to interrupt you, but you said a hole sure. in a portfolio. So is that like if I have some chip that I'm trying to patent and I or I'm trying to make sure I have patent understanding of it? And, and Clear Access is good at identifying, oh, there's actually like a, a, a hole in this and you need to shore this up with some other patent?
1: Exactly. So it, it, it's effectively an area that they do not have freedom to operate in. Mm. with it. And their portfolio does not give them that freedom to operate. It gives them other areas that allows them to execute on the technology. But fundamentally, as a whole, they're missing certain core steps.
0: How could you identify that?
1: So how we identify that is our AI can read that family group of patents. So the user will select their portfolio that relates to that product line. So let's use an example here. Let's say that there's a robot that does human mimicking and they're trying to put on the market a robot that has, you know, various facial features that that really mimic the human the human face so they have a portfolio of patents that is probably a combination of software and hardware and as they're you know looking at it and putting it into IP deal room our system reads it all and says okay here are all of the patents that will enable human face mimicking and and then it will show you how your patents relate to this pool of patents, and it can show you gaps that other people have filed in that you have actually not built out your portfolio. One example could be, you know, a, a, a neural network sequence that is, you know, able to respond in a robot human interaction and say that's missing because they focused, uh, the company focused more on, for example, you know, mouth twitches or mm-hmm. smiles. <laughs> So, I mean that's that's just one example, but but there are, you know, outside of robots, and, and even in healthcare quite a few others in which you can have a medical device that is is very good on um for example, a delivery of a medication but not the housing of the applicator.
0: So, I know you, I know you're not an engineer, but can you describe how the like ingest the data ingestion process? Like if I'm like, if I'm feeding, so let's say I'm integrating with clear access and I'm one of these giant corporations and I feed my 2000 or if I don't know how many patents a giant company has 500,000 patents, a million patents into this clear access system. What's the process for processing those and indexing them and getting them into a state where you can learn about what products you have coverage over?
1: Sure. So the process is all we need is the application serial number. And mm. even at, at a large corporation, we're only looking at kind of, you know, a portfolio in the thousands. So potentially the tens of thousands. 3M's portfolio is like seven and a half thousand. And, and they're a massive oh. corporation that's been oh, okay. around forever. So.
0: And that's like seven and a half thousand. And it's like what, seven pages each or 20 pages each or?
1: They're, they're, they're roughly about 20, 25 pages okay. on average. And so the system just needs the, the application serial number and an individual can key that in very quickly. Our system grabs everything else. Yeah, They then determine that, that they'd like to create an analysis through IP Deal Room. So all of those numbers get bundled together and then there's a little button up top that says enable machine learning and they just slide it into the on position. At that point, our machines go through and read that entire portfolio and then they it takes that reading and it compares it to the entire Cluster of related patents. It uses a, a, a neural network process, which has already been trained on the entire patent corpus, wow. and then it returns the, the top similarity results. It also looks at kind of how the organizations compare to one another, so it can it can pull back all of you know the other companies that are doing work in this space, in addition to their specific IP.
0: I see. Okay, so. Basically, this is something that – an this is a really useful tool for the IP council inside of 3M, for example, if they need to figure out, okay, does our new – I don't even know what 3M makes these days. If our new chip – what does 3M make? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. anyway okay fine let's bat our new battery i don't know i forget what they make but if they, they want to say okay well our, like what is our is do we have our new battery covered patent wise they can basically do a measurement of their the things that they can take their battery and think about the different things that go into making that battery and clear access will figure out what patents 3M owns and then do some that are related to those different pieces of technology in the battery and then do some similarity measurements against the entire patent corpus so that you can basically have a, a larger data set to kind of cross reference against and then the output of that would be okay well you know here's basically here are the here are the documents that pertain to the riskier portions of that and this would allow the IP council to to look more closely at those other documents. So it's not gonna like spit out the answer, yes or no, you are patent protected. It's more gonna say, here's the information you should look at to research this matter more closely.
1: That's right. And and again, we try not to present this in terms of risk. We're really trying to present this in uh, terms of potential um collaboration or just internal you know really getting more precise on internal strategy Mm -hmm. because my there's a fine line between what is risk and what is strategy in the patent industry and we don't want to come off as a system that promotes the traditional risk assessment exposure And we want to instead have a system that creates transparency and opportunity. (laughs) And so one of the reasons why we present the data the way we do, which is not, you know, these are your biggest competitors, watch out for these patents. We could do that very easily, but I don't think that's conducive to what many of these people ought to be doing. I think that they should be looking at the invention landscape as, okay, well, they they found this approach helpful or they're doing something very similar in this space, you know, is, is that the route we want to go? Is that the bet we want to make? And if it is, then, okay, well, this is an opportunity to cross-license or to create a patent pool or potentially build some goodwill if we all just do a consortium of pledges. So it, it's it's a slight mind shift change, but it really makes all the difference. And our tool is trying to provide that piece, that critical piece of information at a critical time of, in the decision-making process.
0: And I guess you probably don't wanna build a tool that patent trolls would look at and say, ooh, how could, like, what's our next target? <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, exactly. And, you know, we, we have actually been approached by a few patent trolls and, you know, they've asked for different ways of tweaking the algorithm to help them be more effective. And, and we just have to say, no, that's not what our mission is. Mm.
0: Huh. So you've said no to potential customers because it's just, you just don't want to be associated with building patent trolling tools
1: yeah I you know clearxs IP was created with a very specific mission in mind and it would be antithetical to that mission to to change our product in any way to make a patent troll more effective
0: what do you think of these patent trolls
1: personally um, personally well I, I I personally care about the integrity of our patent system because I I think that a structured way of storing human invention is valuable, and I think that patent trolls are just like angry drivers on the road that think that those lanes, that driving on the road was made for, for really one use, which is to go fast and, and, you know, to get to where you need to be as fast as possible, irregardless of, you know, basic decorum on the road, and just like traffic trolls, patent trolls kind of just, they, I think they just got the wrong idea and, you know, what they're doing may not be illegal, but it certainly is disrespectful <laughs> to what this system was built for.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So talk some about the software development process at Clear Access.
1: Sure. So we really are a software company, even though when we talk about what we're doing, it's really service oriented. We're we're definitely an enterprise software as a service business. However, uh, engineering, we're taking kind of the latest papers and the latest breakthroughs in machine learning and applying them in our product and testing them to see if they even work for what we're trying to do. So for example, Our machine learning analyst is based on a paper that was released out of Stanford Hmm. just two and a half years ago. And, you know, a lot of work has been done off of this paper and we've really had that benefit of learning from, from researchers in, in machine learning. And, and so we're, we're not relying on kind of old methodologies of, of, of just, you know, computational logic and applying big data. I mean, we definitely benefit from these things, but really where we put our engineering focus and our engineering dollars is taking really, you know, for example, we figured out how to apply computer vision algorithms to text, natural language text, and and that's given us quite a bit of leverage in accessing at a, at a low price analytical products and making those available in mass to our users
0: oh so these are like for patents where the document has been scanned but it's not like optical character recognition hasn't been applied to it so you have so you have the capacity to process it and actually get the text of those photos
1: that's one use scenario the the other way that we look at it is a lot of the computer vision algorithms were really good for drawing comparisons based on mathematical measurements. So what we did with our patent corpus was we turned all of that text into effectively equations. So how, how one concept is related to another concept rather than doing keyword based analysis, we do neural network level analysis which requires us to turn that text really into numerical values. So we measure then the numerical relationships between concepts versus saying, oh, these are the same keywords, let's cluster them together. We say these concepts map at this, at this weighting and, and that way we can go through the patent corpus with a greater degree of insight than just merely clustering words together and, and weighting the word value in a document.
0: How do you train that conceptual graph?
1: Uh, Well, (laughs) some of the stuff we haven't actually made public yet. But at, at a high level, we've gone through various stages of training where we've had to first parse down and and vectorize the entire patent corpus and, and work up from there. So it was really a process of, of figuring out how to decouple each patent file into these small concept parts, and then we trained it actually based on a computer vision discovery that allows us to then pair parts of the patent file to other parts of other patent files.
0: Hmm.
1: And that gives us that really deep understanding of, of why certain concepts are similar versus just the whole document being similar. And, and, and really what that is mimicking is the human analyst saying this is a part that relates to this other part, but the other parts don't match the same way, and that's why these two patents are different. Rather now, than th- simply saying these patents are similar.
0: So, if you want to create a conceptual map for a particular patent, it seems like you would need to do some sort of human labeling for that to to create that conceptual mapping for the patent. Otherwise, you would just have to go through the patent and. Do those, you know, tech some kind of textual count of, of different words. So, how are you tr- getting the labeled data for a given patent?
1: Again, we're using machine learning to help us out with that. It would take simply too long to hand tag every patent in the world. There's about 90 million patents worldwide, and I, I don't know of any. Clerical oh, Turk right. out there that yeah, would be yeah. able to do it. Certainly. So no, so- no, I
0: understand. my My question is more like, how do you? It, so for a given patent, if you're, I mean, it, if you're just, you can just count the, you could just count the words, and you know, say, uh, okay, this 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 patent mentions swipe the word swipe, you know, with some like TF IDF value of uh, like a high tf idf so you know it's you know this this is a particularly related to swiping this 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 document is particularly re- related to swiping i, I mean i just I, the reason i ask is I, th- I think you mentioned you you tried to do something beyond just kind of the, the the pure text counting so i was just curious if if there's if the conceptual mapping is really based on you know that kind of thing like the traditional tf idf stuff or if you're doing something different than that
1: Well, we, we are doing something slightly different. So we, we have to, we, we've turned each word into a vector and that, you know, through, through the vectoring process, what you do is, is you kind of create a semantic pairing that is much more fine tuned than just weighting the word as its own object. Mm. So every vectorized word is in relation to all the other vectorized words that that word was seen around.
0: Ah, okay. Interesting. So it's just, it's like a conceptual, so that makes it a kind of conceptual thing compared to, okay, because the naive like TF-IDF stuff, that's more of just how does this word, how frequently does this word occur in the, in the document relative to how frequently it occurs in the average document within the corpus that doesn't give you any impression for how it relates to the words around it in a given document
1: yeah that that method is 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 used but it's very it's it's treated as a very superficial measurement because fundamentally, it is a very superficial measurement. Mm-hmm. So we, we take that and we say, okay, how do we turn it into a, a more active interpretation? Meaning rather than just saying, okay, now at a high level, it's, it's seen and it's weighted this much. Well, why? Why is it seen and it's weighted this much? And it's, and it's seen and it's weighted this much because these other enabling concepts surround it and, and because we're able to to look at this in terms of a very dense collection of concepts that all work together, right? To achieve this certain next dense concept of, of concepts. Yep. And then we can then look at this in terms of, okay, there's a nucleus and then these are, you know, the cytoplasm the, the and, and, and all these other membrane parts. So we look at it in terms of, of almost, of looking at in terms of human biology of how, how cells work together.
0: Okay. Well, I know we're nearing the end of our time. I wanted to just ask you a few questions about business strategy because you're in an interesting position relative to other a lot of other software companies because you're revenue positive. But also, it's this is a type of software that a lot of companies probably don't even know that they want. So you're in a position where you could probably raise money more aggressively and... Scale up that sales team, maybe build more features that your current customers want, so you could you know there's plenty of reasons to hire more engineers, or you can just kind of cruise along and and figure out a way to scale up the team while also scaling up revenue. so you've got some interesting sets of trade offs which it's a great place to be. I'm curious about how you evaluate that from a business perspective from a growth perspective
1: yeah, that's a great question so. We, Our company falls into the legal tech category. And if you look at some of the investments, there there haven't actually been that many into legal tech. But if you look at the nature of some of the other ones, they were really based on this idea that you can you can collect a lot of legal related information, package it differently, and then potentially sell to one of the large behemoths in the legal tech space, such as Thomson Reuters or LexisNexis. Our company is slightly different. It is in some ways very much a legal tech company, but in other ways it can actually do corporate strategy. So then it allows us to present ourselves to our users as being both a legal tech tool, but also a corporate development tool and that means that we might we're a little confusing to investors <laughs> cuz they 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 don't know how to categorize us exactly and we have revenue but we're very much set up as a lean startup so where we are at this very moment is looking at our future in terms of you know how how fast do we really want to scale our model? And do we want to just focus on the large enterprise accounts or is there something we can do for, you know, as like almost a consumer product such as Box or Dropbox? Can we be, you know, as available to implement for individuals and do we go that route or do we, you know, strictly stay to SaaS? So these are things that we're working out right now and trying to figure out. And it's an exciting time. Our team is just, you know, I think one of the most um, inspiring groups and we're, we're here in Palo Alto. And, and I just, I I think that we're not trying to hurry to raise a series a or rush to exit. We're really just enjoying the fact that we have this privilege to, to make and make available a very sophisticated, low cost patent AI.
0: Cool. Well, that sounds like a good place to, to close off. It's been really interesting talking to you and, you know if i find the legal tech space quite interesting you know i'll be watching clear access closely cuz the the business is uh, evolving in in quite an interesting way and i've i've looked at some of the other legal tech businesses i don't think i've seen anything exactly like clear access so it's it, it'll be cool to watch
1: thank you it's been great chatting with you jeff okay
0: thanks nicole